Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Allison Encero, Senior Editor of the American Journal of Managed Care. There is a timely new book out that took a decade to research and write, and it arrived in May 2020, nearly six months after the coronavirus disease 2019 pandemic began. That month, as the U.S. was simultaneously grappling with the task of both vaccine development as well as an effective treatment for SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes the disease, hard conversations began taking place in healthcare and other businesses after the police killing of Minneapolis resident George Floyd. Dr. Jill Fisher's book, Adverse Events, Race, Inequality, and the Testing of New Pharmaceuticals, supported by NIH grant funding, examines the secret world of phase one drug testing in clinical trials with healthy volunteers. Dr. Fisher, a professor of social medicine in the Department of Medicine at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, conducted research and interviews with phase one volunteers and research staff at six clinics in 2009 and 2010, two on the East Coast, two in the Midwest, and two on the West Coast. One clinic was run by a major pharmaceutical company, one was an academic medical center, two were international contract research organizations, or CROs, and two were local for-profit research clinics. All names were kept confidential. During that time, she interviewed more than 200 healthy volunteers, the majority of them male. In her overall sample, participants were 37% non-Hispanic white, 35% African American or Black, 22% Hispanic, 4% Asian, and 1% Native American. But when looking at first-time participants, compared with those who join Phase 1 trials repeatedly, people of color are overrepresented in the serial participant category. And at this point, it seems wise to welcome Dr. Fisher to Manage CareCast. Dr. Fisher, welcome to Manage CareCast. This is a very enlightening book. Can you explain why you have so doggedly pursued this topic? Well, thanks for having me. Um, I think my interest in the topic really comes out of my broader interest in the change in how clinical trials are conducted, especially in the U.S., but really around the world. So my previous project looked at this major shift in where clinical trials were being conducted that I think a lot of us think about clinical trials as happening at academic medical centers. And of course, that has shifted pretty dramatically over the last few decades. So more and more private practices are involved in medical research and more and more commercial for-profit companies are involved in medical research. And when I was doing that project, I couldn't help but notice that lots of companies were investing many millions of dollars in building these brand new phase one facilities for phase one trials. And it really grabbed my interest. And so I basically decided that that was going to be my next project. And as far as why I've continued to pursue this for the last 10 years, I think it's really because by doing that study, I became aware that minority people really participate so dramatically in these clinical trials. And it's really counter to the typical narrative we have in medicine and biomedical research. So, you know, that narrative typically says that it's really hard to recruit minorities into clinical trials. And yet in phase one trials, we see 
that uh, African-Americans and Latinos are really overrepresented in these studies. And so to me, that became a really important puzzle to try to think about and figure out, you know, what's going on with that, you know, with, with these patterns. You structure the book around two concepts, imbricated stigma and the healthy volunteer as a model organism. Can you talk a little bit more about what you mean, starting with imbricated stigma? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, of course, I think stigma is a concept that many people are really familiar with. But what I was trying to do in the book is to really show how um, multiple stigmas coexist that, you know, of course, sometimes when we're thinking in medicine about particular stigmas and how they might affect the kinds of care people get, we tend to think of that stigma and isolation. So like maybe a classic example of that might be HIV positive status, for instance. But when we're thinking about the kinds of social inequalities that might lead people to want to participate in clinical trials, I thought it was really important to think about how multiple stigmas really might be working um, in this context to, to, to motivate or drive people to, to enroll in clinical trials. So things like um, race, class, uh, lack of education, a history of incarceration. And all of these things um, are really durable types of stigmas. They're, they're really hard to change because of the kinds of um, perceptions we have in society, but also sort of racist social structures that really dictate the kinds of life chances people have. And what about the healthy volunteer as a model organism? Concept. Yeah, so that was a different kind of concept that I developed in the book. And it was really born out of this idea that to participate in a phase one trial is so different than later phase trials. And so what is really unique about this context is that participants are often asked to check into a research facility for some length of time. And it's literally a locked in facility a lot of the time. And participants are asked to um, really restrict their activities in a whole host of ways. And so the comparison to non-human animal research was really um, front and center in my mind as I was thinking about these facilities. And then as I thought more about it, it started to occur to me that healthy volunteers really are a type of model organism, or um, you know, another way to put that is a, a, a type of a, a group that kind of stands in for another group. So in this context, healthy people stand in for affected patients who might one day take a, a drug or therapy that's being developed. There's not a lot of focus in a phase one trial, it seems, on what would be the ultimate goal. You sort of refer to it there about, you know, later stages where people would get a drug. Um, you know, the goal being a validated product to market to alleviate some kind of medical problem. What are some of the inherent conflicts that you uncovered as a result of, say, competing economic interests? You discuss how everyone has a role to play and everyone has an economic interest in the outcome, whether it's the volunteers, the drug companies, the academic centers, or the con uh, contract research organizations. Yeah. So, I mean, I think one of the things that's pretty interesting about phase one trials is that they're designed to test the safety or tolerability of a new product, but the bar is pretty low. So it's really not to have a robust understanding of safety, but to really make sure that a product is safe enough to continue development um, and to get a sense of what kinds of side effects might develop um, when 
testing the drug further. And so from my perspective, it really does show that there's um, sort of a way in which that the, the industry is trying to help show that these drugs are safer than perhaps they really are in order to continue development, that companies have invested hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars into these products. And of course, they want them to succeed. And so one of the things that I think is really clear is that just in terms of how the clinical trials are designed and who is eligible for the clinical trials, it really does help to show that the drug is safer. So for instance, if the drug might perhaps um, lower someone's blood pressure, well, then, you know, the clinical trial is going to be designed in such a way that you have um, healthy individuals who bl whose blood pressure isn't too low, um, because you don't want that to dip into dangerously low levels, or, you know, the inverse could also be true. And so there are these ways in which the, the clinical trial protocols are really um, helping to kind of show that the drug is, is a, a little bit safer than it might actually be. And then on top of that, you have a whole array of restrictions, like um, participants can't uh, consume caffeine, for instance, or exercise and all of these kinds of things, um, which again, you know, sort of help to have this highly controlled environment where it doesn't really match the real world conditions in which patients might eventually be taking the products. You described some other things like um, both the staff and the participants who want to be in the trial, no matter what, breaking rules or um, ignoring the washout periods on the participant side to participate in trials one after another. Mm -hmm. What if Yeah, so I mean, the, they're... As far as on the ground, the clinical trials themselves, the clinics are motivated to get healthy people enrolled in their trials and to do so expediently so that they can actually fill these studies and get them done on the timelines that they've promised the companies that have contracted out to them. And for their part, healthy volunteers are motivated to participate because they're paid um, a fairly sizable amount of compensation to enroll. And so these kinds of forces um, really do motivate or shape people's behavior so that uh, it really does facilitate on the clinic's part recruitment into these clinical trials and on the healthy volunteers part uh, eligibility for the trials. And so there is a lot of rule bending. And I think, you know, one of the, the classic things that you mentioned is that uh, phase one trials typically require that participants wait uh, at least 30 days from their last clinical trial before enrolling in a new trial. And this is in part to um, reduce risk to participants to make sure that any investigational drugs are really out of their system before they try a new one. Um, but it's also for the validity of trials uh, because having an investigational drug in your system that the clinic doesn't know about might affect the outcome of the new trial. But these kinds of rules are certainly broken by participants and by research staff fairly regularly. Um, there's no centralized database of clinical trial participants in the U.S., so there's not one source to know uh, whether someone has recently participated. And so the, the typical way of knowing whether someone's been in a clinical trial or not is asking them. And what's interesting is that it's really, it is an open secret in the industry that uh, people will lie to get into these clinical trials 
And so what I found was pretty striking was uh, research staff talking about seeing fresh venipuncture marks on participants' arms or still seeing the adhesive from ECGs on their chest uh, and just saying, you know, well, if they told me that they haven't been in a clinical trial for the last 30 days, what could I do? Hmm. People feel like they have no choice and that's why they are participating in these trials one after another because it is their main source of income. There may be other things that they do. You describe one person who does poker tournaments and you know, to survive their living out of their cars, but um, this is really a main source of income for this subset of serial participants. Yeah, and you know, not everyone breaks the rules, but I think there are definitely some aspects of the industry that encourage rule breaking because clinical trials aren't a reliable source of income. They're not a steady source of income. So even talking to participants who were generally inclined to follow the rules, what they would say is that, you know, if a really good study, and by that they typically mean a well-paying study comes up, you know, they, they might want to follow the rules and they might want to follow the washout period, but they're afraid that if they don't pursue that clinical trial, maybe they won't find another one for for a long time. And so um, I think that happens as well, particularly particularly when we're talking about economically vulnerable individuals. Since these are economically vulnerable individuals who have had, um, you know, various degrees of um, things happen to them or being affected by negative social determinants of health, Um, How does all of this play out when they give informed consent to participate and to understand the adverse events that they might suffer? You illustrate two vivid examples, one where there was actually a consent form where people know that they will be eating bad food and another where uh, people had to consent to drink a liquid uh, with their own feces and some people apparently did not understand what that word meant. Does informed in this context mean that the risks have to be presented in a way that is health literate? Yeah, I think it does. I think, you know, what is unique about this context is that you have um, instances where, of course, there's um, scientific or medical language that might be hard for lay people to understand. And I think it's really imperative to make sure that people do understand the risks and understand what they're getting themselves into. But the other thing about this context is because you have so many people who continually enroll in clinical trials, they have a different level of engagement with the informed consent documents. And I think, you know, they start to see that the consent documents sort of all look the same. And so in that context, it means that even if they understand the risks, what they might be thinking to themselves is, well, I was in a previous clinical trial and it said these same things could happen to me. I could have nausea, diarrhea, vomiting, and they didn't happen to me. So I don't think they're going to happen to me in the next clinical trial. And of course, that's a logical fallacy, but you can kind of see why people might think that when they have grown somewhat accustomed to reading consent forms. Hmm. Um, you describe this as an invisible industry. You, you know, the general public does not know uh, about this. Um, and in your conclusion, you wrote that the invisibility of these clinical trials protects the interest of the pharmaceutical and phase one industries while making healthy, um, 
volunteers more vulnerable to exploitation. And you conducted this research about a decade ago after the 2008 recession in the United States, as we know now, is in the middle of another serious crisis, and some might even argue it downfall if we don't turn it around. What is your knowledge about current conditions for phase one volunteers, given the unprecedented research collaborations that are taking place right now for other diseases, mm-hmm. you know, COVID just being one example? Yeah, definitely. So from what I've seen, um, like most industries in this country, there was a a massive shutdown with phase one trials um, starting in March. And I think that's starting to pick back up, but certainly there was definitely a time period in which most phase one trials just weren't happening. And I think that really makes sense when you consider that people would have had to have been confined together in a research Mm -hmm. facility that uh, the, the risks are kind of a different scenario in that kind of clinical research than perhaps more, you know, outpatient kind of structured clinical trials. From what I've read recently, I think that's starting to pick back up that uh, some phase one trials are being conducted. But certainly in the short term, I think phase one trials really look different than they did uh, nine months ago. And so I think that's probably the most dramatic change to the industry. How do they look different? I mean, I, I'm I'm just assuming that there's going to be much more care and concern about confining people together um, now that someone could be asymptomatically infected with with coronavirus. That it's just a different kind of scenario than it was prior to the pandemic. That's right. In, in your book, you describe walking into a dormitory-like environment where there were 50 people on beds staring at the ceiling, you know, so you're thinking that sort of thing would change. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, most of these facilities um, are designed to house tens, if not 50, if not over 50 or over 100 participants. And so you really do have a lot of people in close quarters. Um, so it would, it would be an environment in which you, you could imagine that the, the virus could, could spread pretty quickly if someone was infected. Right. What can or should be done about this. You know, you talk to staffers who expressed some concerns, some who didn't, and, you know, it seems like some of the volunteers were just doing it because they felt like they had not much of a choice and it was a pretty good option given perhaps other circumstances. I could see maybe various companies involved saying, well, it's not our job to fix the income inequality or the racial inequality we have in this country that would lead to this. So is this a regulation issue or is it something else? Yeah, I think that there is generally a lack of oversight of phase one trials in this country that, you know, you have like we've been talking about these inpatient facilities, and there's really not a lot of regulation about how they should be designed, um, how much space participants should be given. Um, You know, there are definitely some people in the industry who suggest that it's not safe to put clinical trial participants in bunk beds, for instance. You know, someone could fall off off the top bunk, especially given the kinds of symptoms they might be having, or you might not be able to access someone in a top bunk quickly if something terrible were to happen. So something like that, there's just, there aren't, there aren't federal guidelines uh, structuring how these clinical trial sites should look, how they should be run. Um, 
there are definitely instances where people who work there are not trained as well as they should be. So I do think there's a lot of room for regulation of ensuring that uh, these clinical trial sites are, are run as, as well as they could to protect the interests of participants, as opposed to um, really having commercial interests, which I think is often what's structuring the kinds of decisions uh, that clinics make right now. Is it this different in other countries? I imagine some of the same organizations, they're global organizations, they run phase one trials in other countries, but do those countries handle it differently? I have never visited a phase one site in another country, so I can't say um, for sure in terms of how they look or how they're run. Definitely other countries have more regulation around uh, phase one trials or clinical trial participation more generally. So some countries um, have clinical trial registries, so they know who's participating in clinical trials and how often. Some countries have restrictions on how much money someone could earn in, a cl in clinical trials every year. And these are ways to just try to um, reduce the amount of participation people have in clinical trials each year. Interesting. Is there anything else I forgot to ask or anything else that you want to add? I can't think of anything. Okay. Well, thank you very much for uh, joining us. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. For more about this issue, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, visit info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.